Hello, today is the 27th of August. Welcome to the Mike Dominic Show. I am, as always, Mike Dominic. I have a great conversation with Paul, the CEO over at Rogue Amoeba. Rogue Amoeba, if you don't know, is a Mac independent software development company. So they build Mac apps and they're indie, and I think that's awesome. You know, I love the indies. Um, I have some exciting other news today as well. Coder Radio, which I think many of you know what that is, is back. There's already a brand new episode up, and we're recording again on Monday, live at 3 p.m. on Jupiter Broadcasting. So, yeah, take check that out. It's Coder.show. Folks who've already known about that have been asking if the show is going to continue. It is. It is going to continue in its current format of an interview show. So, yeah. So, best of both worlds, right? As always, brought to you by the Matt Botter, my consulting company. We also build products. Check us out. See if you want anything we have. And without any further mishigas, here's Paul. Hello, Paul Kafasis. How are you? I'm doing all right. How about you? I'm good. So you're the CEO at legendary classic Mac shop of Rogue Amoeba. That is true. I'm the CEO. I don't know if we're legendary, but uh, I'll take it if that's uh, if that's what you want to give us. Why not? So you guys have been around for, for quite a while, right? 18 years. Uh, 18 years next. Uh, today's what? The 27th. So uh, 17 years and 11 months right now. Okay. And the, the primary business is developing Mac software? Yeah. Consumer level software, audio software specifically is what we've focused on, although that was never really our goal in the first place, but uh, that's sort of what we fell into. But yeah, consumer level uh, downloadable software and uh, aimed right at end users. Awesome. Yeah, I actually have one of your apps. Uh, I hope I saying it right. Piazo, which is your uh, kind of a recording solution. That's our, our simpler recording solution. Exactly. It's, uh, it's uh, designed to make it very easy to record with just a couple clicks. You know, I'm a pretty simple minded guy. I, w- I would have been <laughs> a, a stormtrooper, not a Jedi. So all right. Simple is better. So you're developing independent applications for the desktop in 2020. What's that like? Interesting. Well, there's obviously sort of a slant to that question, but for us, it's working very well. I think a lot of people, at least in the tech space, think, oh, you know, the apps have been taken over by either big companies, Facebook, Amazon, that sort of thing. Uh, They buy up all these companies or the platform vendors themselves. Apple certainly has plenty of their own products uh, that they release, but we have done pretty well and especially in recent years done even better as far as providing solutions that people need and despite what some people think you don't need to be selling in an app store to make a living and you don't need to be selling in an app store to get publicity you can uh, at least we can we have been able to survive as an independent software developer in 2020 that is exactly what i was hoping you were going to say <laughs> i firmly believe that it it is true that it's tough to be a small guy these days, but I I think it's a bit overblown. It is certainly possible. I think that's right. I think that obviously we have a a big advantage of having been around for almost two decades. So so people, whether or not we're legendary, certainly many people know our name, know some of our products. And that's a built-in advantage that we, you know, we worked hard to get, obviously, but uh, it shouldn't be dismissed. If you're starting from scratch right now, it's a different world than it was in 2002 when we first came on the scene and when we first released our our initial products. So I, I don't want to say, oh, anybody can do this. It's easy. You you don't need to deal with Apple. You don't need to you know do the things that uh, are sort of thought that you need to do. Uh, I don't want to say that 
this will definitely work for anybody, but there is an opening and, and people are still willing to pay for software that does what they need. And if you can provide a product that does what people need, I think you can still charge a, a reasonable fair price for it that will keep you in business as it has for us. Yeah, that, I, I have to agree. Now, so you're selling outside the app store. Now, I used to actually sell a couple Mac apps way back when I was a full-time Mac OS user. Uh, I've since become a hippie in the woods with Linux, so okay, won't even go into that. I, I like the okay, that's good. <laughs> so how affected are you by things like notarized apps? So, right. So Apple has these these various ways. They introduced developer ID a few years ago and then notarized apps where every application needs to basically say, hey, Apple, this is what I look like. And in the future, if Apple says, oh, you know what? That software has been infected with malware. They can shut it down so that users can't even run it. To answer your question, not terribly affected thus far. Notarization and developer ID, basically signing software is, is kind of a pain in the butt. And notarization specifically, every time we make a build that we want to distribute to anybody outside the company anyway, we need to hit Apple's notarization server and say, hey, here's the software, give us a notarization certificate. We attach that to the software. The technical aspects of it are, it's deeper than that even, but basically it introduces a delay when we make a make a new build, which is mildly annoying, but we've built it into our, our development tools. So... Basically, when we say, okay, we need to make a build for release, it might take ideally two to 10 extra minutes for that to be ready. Sometimes in the past, at least, we've seen issues where the notarization servers are down for minutes or hours, or I'd have to look, but the longest has been maybe 12 or, or 24 hours where the software basically just couldn't be notarized, which obviously nobody wants. Apple doesn't want that. So it's, it's something where they need to have a reliable system in place to make this work. But the, the short answer is, like I said, this is not a, a tremendous impact day to day. It's just something we had to set up and, and hopefully it provides some benefit in terms of security for users uh, in case anything ever happens with our software or with any software. Right. It, it doesn't sound like a bad system to me. It actually reminds me of uh, you know some MDM solutions for enterprise with like iPad and iOS, right? You had to have a server somewhere managing the devices right. with the certificate. Is that, is that similar? I know I'm grossly simplifying things. You're not grossly simplifying. It's certainly simplifying it. But yeah, it's, it's not dissimilar to that where basically there's a trusted third party that has a right. say in whether this software can run or not. I think the biggest question we had when they introduced developer ID and notarization was how is Apple going to use this? And I don't remember my dates at this point. And 2020 feels like it's been about 10 years long anyway. But Developer ID was maybe four or five years ago when they first introduced it. And we took a little while to implement it because we weren't wild about the idea of Apple having the ability to say, hey, this software can no longer run. That's not a dependency that we felt a need to implement. We didn't want to say, hey, Apple, why don't we give you a kill switch for our software? Uh, <laughs> you, you weren't eager for that? You no, ex- that exactly. I didn't, I didn't beat down their door to say, hey, we want to give you this kill switch. But if you trust the platform ven- vendor, if you trust Apple in this case, to use that correctly and to use it wisely and to effectively not use it unless there is a you know definite issue where malware has been injected in software or something like that, then day to day, like I said, it doesn't impact anybody. The software just runs, everything just works. There's not really an issue. I wonder if you want to touch on a recent case where a developer had their developer ID revoked by Apple incorrectly. Uh, I don't know if you saw this. 
I, I did see it. I don't know the developer myself, but if, if you know about it, please, yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Well, I think it's worth touching on at least as we, as we talk about this because I don't know the developer personally, but we were following this because it really was the nightmare situation for any developer. Once Apple implemented developer ID, we basically said, like, as I said before, here's a kill switch. We hope you don't use it. Don't use it unless you, you know, discover a real problem. And if you do, you should ideally talk to us first so that we know it's going to happen. And, you know, or we've been so compromised that you have to use it. But this kill switch can be invoked by Apple at any time. And thus far, prior to about, uh, this was about six weeks ago, maybe, it had never been invoked in a way that seemed problematic, as far as I was aware, at least. But as I said, just a few weeks ago, a developer, suddenly his applications would not run. And the way that they would not run is when the user tried to run them, uh, it popped up a message that said, uh, I don't want to butcher the, the message too much, but it said, in effect, paraphrasing, you know, this software is malware. It will not run the end, oh. uh, which if the software were malware, that's a fine message. But the software wasn't malware and the developer had been flagged incorrectly and it's not at all clear what happened inside of Apple, whether this was automated, whether this was automated, and then an individual looked at it and said, yep, looks right. Somebody screwed up something. And to the point where Apple, after the fact, in talking to the developer said, we screwed up, we're sorry, You know, we're undoing as much of this as we can, but they can't undo the damage of someone who tried to open that application, saw, hey, this is malware, and then said, I'm deleting this and I'm done, and I don't wanna deal with this developer anymore. Right. And I'm telling um, all my friends to watch out for this developer. Right. Exactly. And so Mac developers in general were, were talking about this extensively. And, and, you know, this developer has at least somewhat of a case against Apple as far as slander, basically. This is, this is sort of a libelous message to have provided to users when it simply wasn't true. I don't think he wants to sue Apple over this, but if he did, I don't know that he wouldn't have a pretty good case. And... So this is something that we saw pop up. And so you asked, you know, how much does notarization impact us? How much does, does developer ID impact us? Day to day, it doesn't. But if this ever happened uh, where we got flagged incorrectly, that would be a huge deal because all of a sudden no one would be buying the products. People would potentially be saying, you know, hey, what, what's going on with this company? Telling their friends, as you said. So it's something where we're very hopeful that Apple realizes they screwed this up puts into place systems that prevent such a thing from happening again. And many people described it as, you know, there should be, it's like launching a a nuclear missile. There should be two people who have to turn a key and press a button to fire this off. So it's not something that, it's not clear, like I said, whether this was fully automated or whether someone approved it. But either way, the system did not work that it should, the way that it should. And hopefully that's improved in the future so that it doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think you would almost hope that that system is not automated, right? Uh, Absolutely. Right. Someone someone has to like sign a paper and authorize that kind of action. So, okay, you're you're developing your apps are native is, is my I, I just know that, right? They're yeah, native. absolutely. How was the Objective C to Swift transition for you? Because I think that's something that people I mean, I used to I love Objective C, but I, I digress on that point. But. Well, I mean, we do, too. So that's uh, okay. so I mean, the the transition is actually in progress. And it's something that will take years because we have, so in 2002, we started developing in Cocoa Objective-C and Swift is what, about five years old as well right now. So, you know, we've got, we had a decade plus of nothing but Objective-C code Mm -hmm. and we still have a ton of Objective-C code because it does not make sense to say, all right, let's rewrite all of this because Swift is the future. 
it makes a lot more sense to say, okay, we have new code. We'll do at least some of that in Swift. We have something that needs to be rewritten. Let's consider whether we're going to do that in Swift. But so right now we have Farago, our soundboard application was an app that we wrote in Swift specifically, I don't even want to say as a test, but as sort of a test case for Swift. So one of our Objective-C developers said, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to work in Swift on this. And he personally did not love it. You know, you, you mentioned loving Objective-C and everyone has their pet language or pet languages and, and then their languages that they despise. They all work. I mean, any language can be made to do what you need it to do, broadly speaking. So you can do in Swift generally what you want the same way you can in Objective-C. But if you're familiar with Objective-C, then you know how to do that much more easily, much more quickly. So it's something where, you know, teaching we're old dogs in Objective-C, teaching us a new trick in Swift, you at least need some time to transition and, and some time to learn how things work and how they work differently and, and whether they're better or just different. So it's something where we have not rushed out and said, okay, Swift is available, let's rewrite all of our applications because that's generally just not a good way to run a business. And then the second thing is that Swift has been changing. So Swift has changed substantially in you know, the five or so years that it's been around. And so the first year, it was just sort of interesting. And the second year, it was, okay, this is getting to the point where you know we could see using this. And you know, years three, four, and five, then it's, okay, it's matured and has a lot more of what you might want it to have. Uh, so I think it's interesting to watch when these sorts of things come out because Apple does things like, oh, they're featuring apps that are written in Swift. You know, they're presenting awards to apps that are written in Swift. And uh, obviously they want to drive adoption of that new language. But as a business person, I don't think, hey, let's use that shiny new thing. I think, you know, what's going to sell to customers, what's going to keep us in business, what's going to earn us money. And customers are not buying an application because it's written in Swift. So that's something where we sort of have taken a really slow uh, approach to it. That all makes a ton of sense to me. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming your, your ACE capture engine is probably also Objective-C. Yeah, and then lower level as well. So that's that's something that uh, is, you know, won't, isn't really even impacted by, by Swift. Okay. Yeah. And for folks who don't know, that is kind of, and, and I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but that's kind of like underpinning technology for a few of your audio apps. Yeah, no, absolutely. The, the ACE is, it stands for audio capture engine. And it is, it just like it sounds like, it captures audio. And our line of products, uh, five of the seven of them use ACE for capturing audio and then recording it, streaming it around your house, routing it to other applications. Basically anything that we're doing with audio that passes audio from one place to another uh, is powered by ACE. And yeah, that's that engine is built on you know 15 years worth of code, and is something that we're always working on, and it's it's the foundation of a lot of our products. Like I said, but uh, it's something that we're very hesitant to change dramatically. Makes a ton of sense. So, what advice would you give to someone who, let's say, they want to break into independent Mac or let's just say Mac development instead of iOS, because maybe that's a different ballgame. Yeah, so iOS is definitely is a different ballgame. And I would there I would say we don't have a lot of great advice because we have not a lot in the way on iOS uh, in sure. the way of products. And what we have done in the past has not been terribly successful because it's very difficult to charge a fair price for a product on iOS. Uh, but to answer your question on the Mac, let's see. Come on in, the water's fine. How's that? <laughs> I like it. Yeah, no, I, I think it's something where... So you mentioned you've you've gone from a Mac to Linux. When did you start using a Mac? 
Oh, geez. Uh, 2008. Okay. So, so that's 12 years ago. So Mac OS 10 was about seven years old at that point, seven, eight years old. I've been using Mac for 30 years. Uh, so I made the transition to Mac OS 10 and, and, you know, the initial Mac OS 10s were not great and people were hesitant to move to them. That was a really interesting time. And that's when Rogue Amoeba got started. It was really interesting because there effectively was no software for the Mac and the software that existed was being ported from Mac OS 9 and new software was slowly being written, but it was a very wide open platform with a very small user base that was slowly growing over time. Now in 2020, there are, you know, tens of millions of Mac users out there. And it's a pretty mature market where Apple has a whole lot of products. So I I wouldn't suggest making a word processor because Apple has one that's free and Microsoft has one that's the industry standard. You know, the all the major product categories have uh, something in them, you know, Photoshop is there and there are independent developers making image editors, things like that. Audio is a space that we have we have covered decently well. But I think there are still plenty of openings and plenty of places for innovation that I would love to see more and more development in. I referenced, you know, the early days of Mac OS X because at the time there were sites like Version Tracker and Mac Update, which is a site that's still around, but they were essential at the time because they would tell you every day there would be 5, 10, 20, maybe even 50 updates to various Mac products. And as a Mac user, you would follow that and you would say, oh, cool, there's a, a new version of this MP3 player or, you know, my FTP client has a new version or, hey, there's a brand new FTP client. Nowadays, I think it's a lot harder to find when new software comes out. There's still plenty of journalists writing about Apple, podcasts about Apple, about technology in general, but there's not necessarily that niche of just Mac focused for people who are really into the Mac. Uh, So even though the Mac might be 10 times as popular, it's not necessarily as easy as it was to get eyeballs for software. So to, to go back to your question of, you know, how do you break in? I guess I'm not even sure. To me, the key is always making a quality product that is useful to at least some small group of people. If you're doing something for yourself, that's really going to be good. If you're if you're doing making a product that you yourself have a real need for, you're going to make it useful and, and helpful for people. The counter to that is always that you are not necessarily your own user base. You mm. hopefully are making a product that is useful to more than just you. So you shouldn't think, I wouldn't use that, so I don't need to implement that, or I would use this specifically, so I need to do it exactly this way. But that's that's sort of a broader idea of software development. In terms of just you know breaking into the Mac, I think if you make a useful product, there are still millions of Mac users out there. There are perhaps more Mac users than ever who are willing to pay for software and you know willing to have their or interested to have their problems helped with software products out there. So uh, again, like I said, the water's fine. There's a, a solid market of people willing to pay reasonable prices for software, you know, sustainable prices for software if you make something that is useful. That sounds fair enough. And I imagine with the with the ARM, um, I, think it's the, I, can't, I don't know which MacBook it is, but actually they haven't announced it. So with the ARM MacBooks, I have a feeling there's going to be a lot of new Mac users, folks who really need battery life. I'm just taking a, a stab in the dark there. but Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what, especially the laptops, like you, like you said, that Apple's laptops have been phenomenally popular for, for years at this point, but yep. when they're powered by their own chips, which will, like you said, get tremendous battery life even better than they do right now and have tremendous performance. It's definitely going to make for some really compelling hardware that uh, I think we'll see a surge in Mac users. And I'm looking forward to that, uh, both as a developer and as a customer who is hopefully going to see a resurgence in software development. 
Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing, I'm sure you and I both go to many conferences, you know, when the world isn't actively Usually, destroying right. itself, right? 20 hours of battery life would be the dream, right? You're not running around looking for an outlet like a maniac. It, it would be a big improvement. Yeah, absolutely. The The battery life is certainly something that will, will be very compelling. So a conversation I've been seeing a lot with other Mac developers is the ARM transition. And is that going to be a challenge for independent shops? I'll put my cards on the table. I, I kind of don't think it's going to be a dr- big problem. Is it? Am I wrong? Am I underplaying the, the change? Oh, here? you're outrageously wrong. And it's going to, no, no. So we have a couple of developer transition kits inside the company and we've been poking at our software. We've got a little bit of time. We don't know exactly when Apple's going to ship their first sure. ARM Macs, but it's certainly not before the release of macOS 11 because that's the first macOS that'll run on those machines. So we've been poking at this and it does not appear that there are going to be any major issues in terms of the transition. So you said you started using a Mac in 2008. The Intel transition was about that. I do remember that was 2005, 2006. And that transition went very smoothly Uh, for us as developers, as a customer. You know, I experienced that on, on both sides. And that transition was handled very well by Apple in terms of Rosetta was the initial translation system that basically allowed PowerPC applications to run on Intel Macs. And then over time, transitioning the whole product line to Intel and the OS moved with it, but still supported the old hardware rather. Basically, they did a a multi-year transition and it was very smooth. I don't want to say it was perfect, but, you know, almost everything worked for everybody. Software worked the way people expected it to. People didn't even necessarily realize their software was was running uh, in a translation engine. And it's very clear that Apple is following the exact playbook they ran 15 years ago. The developer kit is something that they're passing out to developers. It's half as expensive as it was back then. It was a thousand bucks back then, and it's five hundred bucks now. Uh, oh, probably wow. in part because they're supplying the chips for it. So the chip, the CPU for it, is costing them far, far less than it did back then. That's uh, right. Intel gets nothing. Exactly, That's Intel's getting nothing right. on this, and and Apple. I have no idea what their chips cost, but it certainly costs them far less to produce their own chip than to buy one from Intel. So they're, they're selling these, they're, I guess it's technically renting, although we'll see what happens at the end of it. But it's 500 bucks to get a developer transition kit. So any developer, even a, a one-person shop who does this on the side to make a few thousand dollars a year can afford to get one of these kits and get their software up and running. Even if you don't get one of these kits, your software, software will run because they're doing Rosetta 2. So Rosetta 2 will enable Intel-based software to run on these new ARM Macs. So I think, fingers crossed, knock on wood, but I'm expecting this transition to be very smooth for customers. And as far as on the developer side, there's not a lot that is looking like it's going to cause much in the way of pain. Apple did a really good job. Uh, This is something users don't ever really need to notice, but Apple did a really good job of keeping frameworks and keeping technologies available that people, I think, thought were potentially going to disappear. You know, things like graphics APIs and things like that, where Apple had a chance to cut them off and say, well, on the ARM Macs, you need to use the new stuff. Uh, They're actually bringing a lot of the old stuff, I think, in part because they want to make sure that all this software makes the transition. So again, they're running the same playbook that they did 15 years ago. It worked really well then, and there's no reason to think it won't, won't work really well now. So as a developer, I'm not worried. And as a customer, I'm not worried about it. That's a great answer. Yeah, I actually think, so one, my little penguin heart was just warmed to see, you know, Linux running on ARM because right. I used to do a lot of virtualization on an iMac Pro of lots and lots of Linux servers. Okay, so I usually end the show with two questions. One is easy, one is hard, and you get to pick which one you want. Okay. I have to pick before I know what the question is? 
Yeah, that's kind of part of the game. I see, I see. And the hard one's not that hard. Well, let's go with the hard one then. Why not? So what question should I have asked you that I didn't know enough or simply failed to ask you? Oh, oh, that's, I like that question. It's putting all the work on my shoulders. So sure. I don't know about should have asked, but I think it's, we touched on it a little bit, but we've been around for 18 years and we're talking about a couple transitions here, you know, the transition to ARM. So I think it's an interesting question would be relating to how do you break into the Mac today? You know, basically just what has changed over the past 15 to to 20 years on the Mac uh, and in terms of being a software developer. And so should I answer my own question too? Absolutely. That's right, the game. Right. So, I mean, that's a very broad question and I could give a, a another 25 minutes worth of answer on that. And I don't want to, I don't want to blather on too much, but I think the, if I stop and think about where we were 18 years ago and where we are now, I think the biggest thing that has changed is Apple itself. In 2002, when we started, Apple was four years off from nearly going bankrupt or nearly being you know, bought by Disney or Sony or whoever was going to, to buy the scraps of Apple. And Mac OS X was just getting started and it was a, a rocky transition to start at least. You could see the potential for the future, which we have now reached, but back then it was not at all a certainty that we would get this far and that the Mac would get this far. 2002, the iPod was you know, a year old at that point. The iPhone was five years away. Uh, Apple was a tiny company compared to how they to what they are now, which is one of the very biggest companies in the world. But no pun intended. But there were the seeds of a lot of what we see now. But it all could have to mix my metaphors. It all could have died on the vine. You know, the iPod could have never made it to Windows and been a small hit for for Apple on the Mac, and that would have been it. The Mac could have just stayed the Mac and not powered something like Apple TV or powered the iPhone with, you know, its OS. And the iPhone never could have could have come or the iPhone could have come and been a flop. So all these different ways that if things had been a little bit different, Apple could have stayed a very small company uh, compared to how they are now relative to what they are now or could have even failed completely. And now I think if you look at Apple, obviously they have this ridiculous $2 trillion market cap and tens of billions of iOS users and the app store on the iPhone that is the place to get software, the only place to get software. The Mac is still uh, certainly a secondary platform compared to Windows, but it is a very vibrant platform compared to what it was 20 years ago. And you mentioned those tech conferences. When you go to a tech conference, you'll see almost any tech conference, you'll see a ton of Apple laptops in a way you never would have 20 years ago. So to bring it back, the the way that the, the biggest thing that has changed is Apple. And then the impact of that has been felt all over the place as far as even going back to those sites like Mac Tracker and Version Tracker that I mentioned, those have been sort of replaced with the App Store. And that is certainly the place that Apple thinks you should go to find new software, even on the Mac, where it's not as popular. Uh, but it's something where because Apple has entered that space, there's maybe not room for an independent site to be doing something like uh, just listing what the new software updates are. So the biggest thing that has changed is Apple and then the impact that they have had on every part of being a software developer. That is an excellent answer to that question. Uh, so it was, it was a good question and I had a good answer for it and that was all on the fly. Can I ask you, this, what, what was the easy question? Oh, the easy question. All right, yeah, everybody does both anyway. So the easy question is, get, get guessing you're not going to say Windows 10 or Ubuntu here. Okay. But what is your daily driver workstation like hardware, software, and I'm assuming a lot of Xcode? 
I don't do a ton in Xcode myself. I have much smarter people doing that, but uh, I'm in GitHub all the time using their uh, project boards, doing project management for us. Uh, oh, yeah. So the, let's see, I'm looking, I'm at a desk, uh, and there are actually two computers here right now. I've got a Mac Mini running 1015 with a 27-inch display and a wireless keyboard and a wireless mouse. And that is my sort of desktop workstation. And then currently I'm talking to you from a MacBook Air that is running 10.14, and my mic is hooked up to that, and that's that's how we're talking. So the probably the most interesting answer part of the answer is that I'm I have two machines that I use just about every day, running two different OSs. Uh, they're both Mac OS, obviously, but I'm running the current Mac OS 10.15 and the previous Mac OS 10.14, and then okay, it's actually not behind this computer. I think it's in the other room, but I have a second laptop that is running 10, 16, uh, Mac OS 11. Uh, so I'm running the beta Mac OS on that for testing. I'm running the previous OS because we keep our software running on, actually we're, all of our current releases go back all the way to Mac OS 10.12. So 10, 12, oh, 10, wow. 13, 10, 14, 10, 15. Wow. That's a commitment to backwards compatibility. Well, it's, it's, for the older OSs, we don't do a ton of testing on them. We, we test before we release, but we're not doing daily testing because things don't tend to change very much. So things sure. just keep working. I should correct myself. Our, our newest release, SoundSource 5, is 10.13 and up. So that's still three the three most recent OSs, and it'll run on the newest OS when that ships in the fall. But yeah, it is, it's something where I, I mentioned that I use two OSs because it's, it's something where we're, we do have a, a pretty good commitment to not forcing people to to use the latest version of Mac OS. And I think that's, you mentioned Windows, you mentioned Linux. It's it's interesting because Apple has been shipping a new OS every single year for many years now. Uh, I think for at least the past decade, they had a break where it took a little longer in between a couple of the OSs. But I think for at least a decade, every year we've had a new OS. And they've gotten OS updates down to where it doesn't, it's not the huge deal that it was 30 years ago, 20 years ago. It's not even the, the big deal that it was 10 years ago. But I think it is still a bigger deal than Apple sort of lets on to update your OS. Uh, yeah. They sort of make it like, oh, you click in the app store, it'll download, give it an hour, and then you'll have a new OS and everything will be great. And I don't want to say that's wrong, but I will say that often things are not as great because an application has not been updated for that new OS or it has been updated, but there are some bugs in either the application or the OS itself. So just as a user, I don't always want to jump to the newest OS and so as a developer, I say, all right, you know, what can we do to support those people who are on older OSs? And we run version stats so I can look and see that, you know, at this point, I think 1012 has something like one to 5% of our user base. So that's something where when we start supporting macOS 11, we will slowly drop support for macOS 10.12. And all that means is that there won't be brand new updates for that OS. We'll still have we have a legacy section on our website where people can download the software. They can still purchase the software and use it on that platform if they wish. Uh, it just means they won't get the newest updates. But it's something where, like I said, as a user, I don't want to be forced to the newest OS. So as a developer, I, I try to keep compatibility with, with those old OSs for our, for our users. That makes a ton of sense, right? Because people using these as production devices probably don't want to update. Yeah, they don't want to be forced to on day yeah. one to, to move to the new OS and, and deal with whatever issues there are. Yeah, I, I remember when I updated to Catalina, uh, I had I did not I wasn't thinking, and of course I had some compatibility issues with daily applications. It was a lot of fun. 
Yeah, and Catalina's one where, not to impugn it too much, but definitely we saw more bugs from, from that OS update than, than in other years. And you never know if that's going to happen until it ships and until you give it a few weeks. So uh, I think it's always advisable to wait a little while and let someone else test those waters. And, and that means that we don't want to be forcing people to that new OS. Yeah, I mean, I'm still worshiping at the altar of Snow Leopard. Which oh, I wow. Is, yeah, I, my favorite version. Also, it was my first, so that might be right, right, right. somehow connected. It's like a high school sweetheart. That's right. You always remember your first love. <laughs> um, all right. Well, Paul, thank you for coming on. Is there a particular app you'd like to plug? Uh, we're going to link everything in the show notes for folks. So there's two things I, I, I do. Uh, first, as I mentioned, we just had a release called SoundSource, SoundSource 5, uh, and that is probably our most broad consumer application. It's a tool for controlling audio on your Mac. So if you want to change your audio devices, your inputs, your outputs with just a couple clicks without needing to open the sound system preferences. That was the original idea behind behind SoundSource. But since then, it has grown to allow per application audio control. So if you want to adjust volumes of an application, uh, if you want to apply an equalizer to Spotify, say, if you want to add any sort of effects to a specific application or send one application to one audio output and other applications to another, uh, basically, SoundSource gives you a whole lot of control that almost should be built into the OS, but isn't. And then the other thing is that because nobody can spell Rogue Amoeba, a few years ago, we got the domain macaudio.com. So on podcasts, I always say, visit us at macaudio.com and check out our products. That's a very good idea, actually. All right, Paul, thanks for coming on. And uh, we'll link all that in the show notes. Uh, if you're a Mac user, check out some of these audio I have personally used. Actually, I, I did not know Fission was yours, too. So I've actually used two of yours. Oh, great. Okay. Fine. All right. Thanks for coming, Paul. Thank you.